let's get into uh, the Word of God together. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. The Apostle Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. God, we do love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word that can sharpen us, that can guide us, that can lead us, that can transform us. We thank you for the truth of your scripture. We thank you for your living word in Christ who came and lived the perfect life for us, died on the cross bearing our sin and was resurrected on the third day. Lord, we pray through these words this morning that our faith in you would grow and that we would grow to love you more and more that we would be transformed through your truth. And we pray these things through the power of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our faith is futile if it is not accompanied with action. We've spent a number of weeks focusing on Jesus, right? And now we're getting to the point in the letter where Paul is going to tell us what to do. Are you guys ready for that? I know I'm ready for that. Paul is going to tell us what to do and how to live. God's grace and mercy are not so that we can go on sinning. God wants us to be transformed. Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul exclaims, By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Over the next two weeks, we're going to focus... Uh, In this particular chapter and in these passages, we're going to focus on the transformation of our lives through the work of Jesus and how this affects the way that we live our lives as followers of Christ. Paul begins with vices. Vices would be defined as the actions or, or thoughts that we must avoid as followers of Christ. And then next week, we're going to focus on virtues or actions and thoughts that should be embodied or embraced in the follower of Christ and the body of Christ, the church. One word of caution as we unpack Paul's teaching. Many of you would have noticed a, a key phrase here at the, in verse 5. It says, sexual immorality. And so I have one word of caution as we unpack Paul's teaching this morning. First is the focus that this letter is to who? Followers of Christ. This letter is written to people who are in Christ, to the church, to Christians. And we must be mindful of this teaching and that it is aimed at Christians. You see, Christians have something inside of them that guides them. What do we call that? The Spirit. Okay? Christians have the Spirit of God within them 
to guide and we call convict. You'll hear me say, rub up against our flesh. Stir within us to alert us to sin in our lives. I want to be clear about this. We cannot expect those who are not followers of Christ to have the same moral conviction as those who are in Christ. Okay? This is a letter to Christians. Moreover, we will often utilize a passage like this aimed at correcting the church to Bible thump unbelieving friends towards moral behavior. Okay? But the order is wrong when we do that. They need Jesus first. Okay? We see this in in Jesus' meeting with the woman at the well. What does he offer her? He offers her the living water so that she will never thirst again. Who is that water? Jesus. He then leads her to a point of conviction in her sin. Do you see the order? The order is not that Jesus comes and says, you're a sinner, you're sleeping with a bunch of men. The order is, you need me. And if you have me, you will never thirst again. And because of that, you will be, what? Transformed. People need Jesus first and correction second. Love first, direction second. Grace first, guidance second. Okay? And I want to be clear. We call sin, sin. We're not going to beat around the bush this morning. But I also have this desire for this church and for the greater church across America and around the world is that we would be known more for what we are for, which is love. We're for Jesus Christ. We're for sinners being reconciled to the Father than what we are against. And I fear that much of the church across America has leaned too far to being known for what they are against as opposed to what they are for. We are for people being reconciled to Jesus. We are for loving our neighbors. We are for loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean that we shy away from calling sin, sin? No. But by all means, let's get the order right. We should always be a people known first for the way that we love other people. As a letter to Christians, we will focus on the vices that affect the church the most and not our soapbox sins that we love to highlight. We're going to focus on the vices that affect the church, the body of Christ, the most this morning. I know we all have something we want to highlight. We're going to hit on that, but we're going to focus on the things that affect the church the most as far as sexual immorality goes. Okay, and so the focus this morning is kind of in a negative connotation, a negative sense of the things you should not do. Next week is going to be the things that you should do. Okay? So this morning we have the don't do's, next week we have the do do's, right? <laughs> Terry loves it when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do do. 
So vices, we're focusing on vices this morning. That's our, our first point. Colossians 3, 5a, and then the beginning of verse 8, it says, put to death. I want to stop there. Do you, do you realize how many times Paul says, put to death, die to? He says it in, in Romans. He talks about dying to sin. We've heard about that last week. Uh, our, our followers of Christ have died to sin. It's the picture of baptism, of us going under the water and dying and then being raised to new life. So Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. We can define this as our sin nature, the desires of our flesh. And he says later in this passage, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. And we'll define both of these categories. You see, we need to lift our eyes to the greater biblical narrative in the order of Paul's teaching in Colossians. I think you guys are going to get this point clearly this morning. It begins with Jesus. Jesus saves, not your good works or your moralism. He did all the work for you so that you can come just as you are and ask him to save you. You don't have to clean yourself up and make yourself right to seek out God. God loves you right where you're at. And I want to pause because if you're new to our church this morning, I want you to hear this. Because we are going to talk about things that we should flee from as followers of Christ. But if you come this morning and you're seeking and you're searching and you're not sure about Jesus, I want you to hear something very clearly. Come as you are. Come as you are this morning. You don't have to clean yourself up to approach the cross of Christ. Christ calls you right where you're at. Come as you are. He did all the work for you. You don't have to clean yourself up and make yourself right to seek out God. God loves you right where you're at. But, just as his love played out in action in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he wants you to act on your love towards him. I call this action our transformation, our change. We want to be transformed, followers of Christ, more and more in His image. And this begins with being immersed in the person and work of Jesus. That's why Paul has spent the first two chapters of this letter talking about who? Jesus. Through constantly being reminded of what Christ has done for us and the power of the Spirit that lives Within us, you see, Christ is not apart from you. He's still in you if you are a follower of Christ in the, in the form of the Spirit within you. We will steadily be transformed more into the image of Jesus. What does that mean? The longer you are a Christian maturing in Christ, you should be more like Jesus each and every day. You should be able to look back on your life as a follower of Christ and see a marked difference between the way you were and the way you are now. And hopefully in five, ten years, look back and say, man, I was there and now I'm here. Here Paul uh, highlights two categories of vices that we're going to focus on this morning. Things that Christians must put to death 
and rid themselves of. Number one, sexual sin. Christians must put to death and rid themselves of sexual sin. Where did that come from? Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The first list is sins that are related to our, our sexual nature. Now, I want to be clear this morning. Sex is a beautiful gift from God when it's enjoyed in the confines of the biblical basis for what? For marriage. Moses writes in Genesis 2, 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And then he says this, and they become one flesh. In our discussion this morning, Sexual sin is going to be defined as this, as sex outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Some of you may be eager for me to make some sort of scathing remark on homosexuality and homosexual marriage, especially in light of the Pride Month that we have been culturally immersed in uh, throughout June. But that's not the intent of this sermon. Again, sexual sin is any... Any sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, let's get this clear. Homosexual activity, when it's acted upon, is sinful. I said it very clearly. But it's just as sinful as the millions of supposed Christians who fill the church pews of American churches who live together and aren't married. And yet the church will call out homosexuals time and time and time and time again, but they turned a blind eye to the people that sit in church who live in open and unrepentant sexual sin. It's just as sinful as the young men who impregnate young women with no intent of caring for the children that are conceived in the process. But rather, they're just merely seeking to fulfill their sinful, fleshly desires. And it's just as sinful as the epidemic of pornography abuse that has swept through the landscape of Western culture. And I want to be very clear about this and is abused just as much, if not more, in professing followers of Christ. Did you hear what I said right there? We're so worried about homosexuality, and yet there's a cancer festering in the church across America, and it is men who keep looking at garbage on their computers day in and day out. And then have the audacity to sit there on Facebook and post stuff about how righteous they are and condemnation of other people. We'll call sin, sin. But church, this is a letter to the church. Let's deal with the issue that's really affecting the church. There's so much sexual misconduct in the church that it makes me sick. Pastor after pastor falling 
Because one, they felt that they were above the teachings of the Bible. And two, they have a body of followers that have placed them there on that pedestal and never expected them to fall. Let me be real clear about something else. I'm a sinner too. I mess up too. I think things that I shouldn't also. Don't put me on a pedestal. And I want to be clear about that because I want you to know that you have a person that you can come and you can talk to and you can be real with because I'm real. This is not fake Christianity in this room. This is real. This is where the rubber meets the road. Let's get real. You know how many young men I've counseled in my ministry years who have struggled with pornography and the reason why they could come to me is because I didn't sit there and yell at them and scream at them. I told them, I love you. You need to flee from that stuff. Let's work through it. And to be honest with you, it shocks me. I know I've been here a short period of time, but about two and a half, three months now. The gospel does things to you. It affects your heart. And it shocks me somewhat that as we have preached the gospel week in and week out, you know how many counseling appointments I've had since I've come to this church? Zero. Is the gospel doing something to you or not? Because it should be digging into your heart and opening up those things and leading you to a place of repentance and saying, i got to get this off my chest. And I want you to hear loud and clear, if you email me, you call me, I'm here for you. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Our elders are here for you. Our deacons are here for you. Our spiritual leaders in this church are here for you. And we will not judge you, but we will hold you accountable. And we will call sin, sin. But this is the reason why pornography is so rampant in the church. Because it's secret and it's hidden and no one knows about it. This isn't just a young man's battle either. Middle age, older men, everybody. Sexual sin doesn't discriminate just because you're older. Trust me, I've heard uh, as my wife worked in retail for a number of years and I'd go in and visit her, I'd, I'd heard the, I heard the dirty and disgusting things that men would say to her when I was walking in and they didn't know I was her husband. Good news is it doesn't end there. But church, I want us to be clear. We will call sin, sin, but let us focus on the things that we need to address in the body of Christ. Sexual sin isn't just men, it's women also. I had women at my last church that were having to be uh, counseled because they had pornography addiction too. It's rampant in our society because it's so readily available and it's so secret. And our society has said, it's okay, just do what you want as long as it makes you feel good. 
You do you. Christ has called us for something different. To be set apart. So what are we to do? Put the desires of our flesh to death. Paul says, put to death. This is a drastic statement. If we're to put to death sexual sin in our lives, we must cut off the lifeline of that sin. You see, these sins are just symptoms. These sexual sins are just symptoms of deeper gospel issues. It's a symptom of the outworking of our fleshly desires. And it didn't just come about in a vacuum. But it's deep within you. And we need to root that out. Not by white knuckling it. By by getting on our knees and crying out to God to transform us. And then leaning into your brothers and sisters in Christ. And bringing these things to light so that we can walk alongside you. And love you. And pick you up off the ground when you fall. Time and time and time again. If you are struggling with these issues. I love you. And this church loves you. We want to help you. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than have them eventually destroy him. I've seen too many men and women in the church destroyed because of sexual sin. Today's the day. Root it out. Cut off the lifeline. Let's see what Jesus has to say about sexual sin. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 27 to 30. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Did you hear that? It's the same thing. You see, the religious leaders had everything good on the outside. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have everything good on the outside, but within... We have sin still festering within our hearts. Jesus instructs, this is what you do. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to to lose one part of your body than for your whole body body to go to hell. What is Jesus saying here? Let me warn you, he is not literally saying gouge your eyeball out and cut your arm off. Okay? I don't I don't want to see the church next week coming in here with limbs missing. We don't need a bunch of pirates walking around, right? <laughs> what Jesus is saying is get drastic. Be drastic about sexual sin in your life. 
And I'm not going to unpack all that that means, but if, if you need someone to talk to, I'm here. If you need to get drastic about sexual sin in your life, give me a call. Email me. I'm here for you. We can talk about what that looks like to be drastic about sexual sin. One other thing I want to mention is the difference between temptation and sin. Okay? Jesus was tempted, right? Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, yet was still sinless. Okay? Many of us can be tempted by things, but we're not acting on those things, so we're not sinning, and yet some of you feel guilty about just being tempted by things. I want to draw that distinct line because this is also a, a very specific sin where we can heap guilt on ourselves, men in particular, and handcuff ourselves and say, man, I can't lead in the church because I got this thing that I just cannot slay. And that's a lie from Satan. God has still called you to serve even in the midst of your, your imperfection. Now, there's things that need to happen if there's certain things going on. But if I had to be sinless to serve this church, none of us would be able to do anything. So I want you to be clear about the difference between temptation and sin. Just because we are tempted by something doesn't mean we're acting on that temptation. Don't weigh yourself down with guilt because you're tempted by something. But I would add to that, that's a warning sign. Don't go into that area. There's oftentimes that sexual sin that we get involved in, it didn't just, oops, that happened. There's warning signs in your life that have led you to that point, and you've been pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary and going places you shouldn't go and looking at things you shouldn't look at and talking to people that you shouldn't talk to. Ladies, sometimes this can be manifested in emotional ties to men that are not your husband, even though there may not be a, a physical thing going on there. There's an emotional relationship going there. And so you're not above this either. This isn't just a male sin or a female sin. This is sin in the church. Am I clear on that? Number two, what's the... Second vice that Paul calls us to die to. Relational sin. Relational sin. It says Colossians 3, 8 uh, to the beginning of 9, he says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And he says, do not lie to each other. This is to the church. I grew up in the church. And I can tell you that some of the most angry, rageful, malicious, slanderous people live in the church. I'm not saying this church. Don't these words hit home for those of you who have been in the church for 
any time longer than maybe one Sunday. We want to focus on, on sexual sin so much, right? We hit on that, but we don't look at our own relational sin in the church. How many people do you know won't set foot in a church because they've been hurt by the people in the church? Raise your hand. If you know somebody that won't come to church because they've been hurt by somebody at church, probably everybody in this room. You see the importance of us fleeing from these type of actions, these type of thoughts? Rid yourselves of of anger. Sometimes anger can stem from change. They don't do things the way that they used to. Or maybe from someone coming in and say, well, they don't do things like the church does down the street, and I like it that way better. Church isn't some just a la carte menu where you get to pick and choose what, okay, I get to pick my worship style and my preaching style. I don't want too much heat today. I want to feel good about myself, so I'll take this guy here, right? That's not the way this thing works. We must rid ourselves of of these things. Anger. Rage. The acting on of our anger. Sometimes our anger is just festering within us. It's, it's the root of what's going on. And these other things are just symptoms exploding out of what the deeper issue is in our heart, which is anger. And I can tell you right now, in a, in a church that is gospel-centered, where we are focused on Jesus week in and week out and what He has done for us, there's no reason for any of us to be angry. We should be the most gracious and merciful group of people, loving because we hear about what Jesus has done for us each and every week. Does that mean we don't deal with issues? We're going to deal with issues. But let us not get to the point of of anger and rage and malice, slander, saying things about people to other people, saying things that aren't true, Half-truths. Flee from those things. Why? We've got three points here. Because God is going to judge. Judgment. Judgment. It's our next point. Judgment. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because of the sexual sins that he lists and the relational sin that he talks about, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. We get more detail in Romans chapter 2 if you want to turn there with me. To the left, a few pages. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give 
eternal life. How do we get those things? Through faith in Jesus Christ and perseverance in that faith until the end. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be what? Wrath and anger. God cannot tolerate sin. Many people in church don't want to talk about God's punishment. We want to avoid the just punishment of sin because in our churches we've been sold the lie that God is only love. He's love. God is love. But this is just one of many of the attributes of God. This is why we have to read His whole Word. He is also just. He is also righteous, without sin, perfect. And He is holy. He is set apart. He cannot tolerate sin because it violates His character. And because of His righteousness, another attribute of God, He must deal with sin. Because if He didn't deal with sin, He would fail to be righteous. God cannot violate Himself. That's a truth that we know about God from His Word. He perfectly embodies all of these attributes at the same time. But the beauty is, is that God is loving. And through His love has reconciled us to Him through what? Through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. You see, we, we see God's hatred for sin here. We see God's hatred for sin in that his, his judgment was placed on His perfect, sinless Son on our behalf. We witness the hatred that God has for sin and the bloodiness of the cross. It's why we can't avoid talking about Christ crucified. It's part of the good news. We can't avoid talking about sin. We can't avoid talking about judgment because then we wouldn't get the full picture of how much God loves us. That is true love, that God would deal with sin. And He dealt with sin by coming Himself and doing what we could not do, putting on flesh and living the perfect life, fulfilling all of the law, fulfilling His own demands, living in complete righteousness, holy. And God's judgment poured out on the cross on Jesus Christ. For what? For our sin. We receive this, His forgiveness, through grace. It's our next point. So we have judgment and grace. Colossians 3, 7, and then we'll skip to 9 and verse 10. Paul says, You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. 
grace. Thank God for grace. Our old self has been removed and we have a new self in Christ Jesus. That's why we say we are in Christ. This new self is being renewed in our growing knowledge of Jesus and his ways. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. That's why we need to learn more about Jesus. If you're discouraged, read the book of John. See how Jesus invaded history and lived for you, healing and loving people. And then taking on the judgment of God himself on the cross. But the beauty of it is is that he didn't stay dead. He resurrected on the third day. We want to be renewed in a growing knowledge of Jesus and his ways. The idea of being renewed grants us a picture that it's not finished yet. But rather that God is constantly challenging our old ways with his new and better ways. And I thank God that he does it that way because I couldn't take it all at once. If God convicted me of everything that I did wrong all at once, it'd be like drinking from a fire hose, right? It's too much, but God works through his spirit convicting us and confronting us in our sin as he sees fit in his timing. Sometimes that happens through the preaching of the word. Sometimes that happens through a brother or sister in Christ tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. Sometimes it happens in our our own investigation of Scripture. God working and challenging us. Here's the beauty of it too. We have a Savior who knows exactly what we have felt. Turn in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4. Look at verses 14 to 16. Author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, what? Tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. And because of what he has done, because he is our priest, who was the priest? He interceded on behalf of His people. We have Christ as our our intercession between God the Father and where we are at, bridging the gap through His perfection and His righteousness because of what He did, because He did not sin. The author says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? With shame and contempt? No! Confidence! Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Lift your head, church, because through Christ and His perfection, you can approach the throne of God with your head held high because we have His righteousness covering us. 
so that we may receive mercy. Here it is. And find grace to help us in our time of need. What's the implication there? You're not perfect. You still need Jesus. You still need his example. You can draw near to him in confidence because he is your priest. But he also sheds his mercy and his grace on you each and every day of your life when you fall short. That we don't have to be ashamed, that we can lift our head in the midst of our sin and we can repent and we can draw near to the throne of God because we have the confidence of Christ. Amen? We have a God who is not distant. This is amazing. He's been tempted in every way. And yet did not sin. He knows exactly what you have gone through. Because of his perfect life, we can approach God confident in the work of Christ. And we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And if you're anything like me, your time of need is every second of your life. Your shortcomings have been covered by the blood of Christ. Not work that you have done on your own, but the work of someone else. Because none of us are in Christ on our own accord, our own work, our own willpower. Must, we must strive towards our last point now. Because Jesus has done this stuff for us. Because Christ is our righteousness, because he's done the work so that none of us can boast, none of us can be arrogant, none of us can be prideful. Paul drives us to this point. Unity. It's our last point this morning. Unity. He ends this passage with these words. He says, Here... There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. It begins and ends with Jesus Christ. We're not saved by our good works, but rather by the work of Jesus Christ and because of our redemption. Again, there's no need to be prideful, boastful, or arrogant. But rather, we must be unified in humility. That is why I tell you this morning, if you're struggling with these sins, bring them to light and come to a leader in this church because we've all been humbled in our own sin. None of us are above you. We love you. Seek out the grace that God has given you through your church family. Unified as one. Humble. And more humble because we know the gospel. And the gospel says, you're not good enough. You needed Jesus. And that's humbling, isn't it? You're not better than, than anyone. Nobody in the body of Christ is, is better than anyone. 
We're all in Christ together, one body. No matter if you struggle with same-sex attraction, lust, angry words, malicious thoughts, self-doubt, and self-loathing, Christ has covered all of you, all of our shortcomings. They were nailed to the cross of Christ. And because He is in us, we are unified as brothers and sisters. Hear these words this morning. Jesus loves you. And because of His love for you, you not should, you must. You must love other people. Right where they're at. Because Christ loved you right where you were at, you should love other people right here and in this room right where they are at. Wright says it this way. He says, wherever one looks, one sees Christ. When an elderly person is ignored, Christ is ignored. Where a lively teenager is snubbed, he is snubbed. Where the poor or a person of a different race is treated with contempt, the reproach falls on him. There must therefore be mutual welcome and respect within the people of God. Nobody must allow prejudices from their pre-Christian days to distort the new humanity which God has created in and through the new man. Who is the new man? Jesus. We don't get to bring any of that garbage into the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, for those of us who are in Christ, Christ is in all. And the way we treat each other is the way that we would treat Christ. That's what we have to think of. When we think of our relational sin, our anger and malice and rage and slander, what Paul is saying here is that when you do those things, you're doing those things to Jesus. And so be unified. The body of Christ should be a beautiful tapestry of people from from all different backgrounds, different races, different genders, different issues, different upbringings, different economic statuses, different careers, different jobs, different ages. And in the body of Christ, there should be no racism. There should be no ageism. None of that. And let me be clear on the age thing. It works both ways. Young people putting down older folks. Older folks looking down on younger folks. We are all one body in the body of Christ. And I've seen too many churches ripped apart because ageism exists within the body of Christ. And it should not be tolerated. Be unified because of what Jesus has done. What's beautiful here at this church is we have a picture of unity each and every week that we get to take part in. Picture of unity is the communion we get to take together as a body of Christ. All coming to the table together. 
There's not a table here for whites and a table there for blacks. It's one table. The body of Christ coming together. And in light of that, I want to urge you this morning, we've dug into some stuff. We've unpacked some stuff. Sexual sin, relational sin, racism, ageism, whatever. I hope everybody is offended in here. Our hearts have been struck. I know that reading through this this morning, I've been offended. It hurts. It hurts to see your own sin. But God's dealing with all of us. And so as we approach the table this morning, as our band comes up, I want you to be mindful of the sins that are in here and for us to be repentant. There should not be one person in here that hasn't been affected by the words that were preached today. If anything, just being grateful for what Christ has done. Don't lose sight of that work. And as we approach the table together, unified as the body of Christ... Be mindful of sin in your life and repent. Flee from it. And hear me, if you are struggling this morning, there's no condemnation from me or the leaders. Come and get help, please. I'm not going to scream and yell at you. I'm going to love you and I'm going to point you to Christ. And every single time you fall, I'm going to be right there with you. And I assure you that the leaders of this church will be right there with you. And so don't be ashamed. Come to the table this morning. Repent. Seek Christ. These are symbols of of Christ's sacrifice on the cross that covered our sin. The bread represents His body that was broken for us. And the juice represents His blood that was an atonement for our sin. Remember what Jesus has done for you today. Relationally, if you have issues with anger, if you've said things about people that are untrue or half-truths, it's time to make those right. First, seek forgiveness from God. Ask for forgiveness because you've sinned against Him. And then seek out that person and ask forgiveness from them. And then come to the table and receive communion. If you're in this room and you're